Hi everyone, this is Yin and welcome to Growth From Failure. I wanted to create this show to highlight extraordinary people that inspire and motivate me to level up, but with a slight twist. I'll have conversations with people from a variety of professions, from investors to entrepreneurs to educators to athletes, because I enjoy hearing a really good success story from any discipline. But I wanted to view their story more through a lens of struggle or hardship and even failure. Because for me, the biggest lessons learned and opportunities to grow aren't from the wins or triumphs, but from the setbacks and defeat. So instead of reviewing their highlight reel with all the success and accomplishments, We'll talk about some of the bloopers that includes the mistakes and the rocky roads, which can be glossed over, but oftentimes more impactful to their mindset and success. I hope hearing their journey inspires you to not fear failing, but motivates you to reflect, to keep learning, and ultimately to keep growing. Felt like I needed to get back on my feet. Something I really learned from martial arts, don't be a quitter. Don't be a quitter. Always fall down seven times, get up eight. This is the story of Tina Lindstrom, a partner at First New York, where she manages an oil volatility portfolio. On this episode, you'll hear a remarkable story of a fighter, literally. Tina talks about fighting in a boxing charity tournament and falling in love with martial arts on the side while balancing a very demanding derivatives trading career over the last 20 years. We first discussed how she heard about trading, and it was at a career fair in college, how she chose Susquehanna to start her career, and how she left to launch a hedge fund, only to have it wind down a few years later. And she really opens up about feeling depressed and feeling like a big failure, and how soul-crushing it was talking to investors as she had to wind down that hedge fund. I've admired Tina for a variety of reasons, and I think you'll hear why when you hear her passion for trading and her intense focus on competition, while also having a huge heart for philanthropy as she's helped open up elementary schools in the Philippines. And it's this non-quitting spirit that you'll hear that truly motivates me. And you'll hear her say, if you're the best, you can still lose, but don't be a quitter, get back up. And that's Tina Lindstrom. And I hope you really enjoy hearing her journey as much as I had speaking with her. Hi, Tina. Welcome to the show. Hi. So Tina Lindstrom is a portfolio manager and partner at FNY Partners. She has a two-decade-long career at trading, whether it's oil, whether it's overall volatility. But before we get into her kind of sales and trading career, Tina, can you tell me where you grew up? I grew up in Queens to immigrant parents. I came here when I was six. So very strict Asian upbringing. You have to do well in school, concentrate on school. And that was basically it. So it sounds like we grew up in a very strict kind of tiger parenting model. So you went to Stuyvesant. What was that like for you? That was a really good experience. The teachers, the principal, they had high expectations for all the students. I was among the best of the best. It was a true meritocracy. We we all had to take a test to get in. There were people from all over New York who attended Stuyvesant, and I met some of the smartest kids there. So I really enjoyed it. And how did you choose the college that you went to? I actually picked the college I went to based on, I followed my boyfriend at the time in high school to Michigan. He decided he wanted to go to Michigan, so I followed him. I applied to all the same schools he applied to because I thought, oh, I have to follow him. I love him. And I actually got a full ride to USC. 
he did not get in because he missed something in his application. And he went to Michigan. I got a full ride at USC, turned that down. My parents were not happy. <laughs> and so you followed him there, love. Are you still with him? No. <laughs> we broke up two months later. Oh, my goodness. It was atrocious. And while I was there, I thought, what am I doing here at Michigan? I looked around and decided to apply to the best program they had in undergrad instead of switching schools, which was business school. I'm always fascinated by how people choose kind of that first major and really that first job out of college, because I feel like it defines that decade in the 20s that is so impressionable and impactful to your life. And so how did you choose your major? And then what did you do after college? So I had interned after Stuyvesant at J.P. Morgan the summer after Stuyvesant. And I was walking around the Michigan Career Fair looking for J.P. Morgan again. I thought, I want to be an investment banker. They make a lot of money. And while I was walking around the Career Fair, I was stopped by one of the directors of HR for Susquehanna. And she stopped me and she said, you look like a trader. And she started to tell me about Susquehanna and talked to me about math. I was very interested, got an interview, answered a lot of really hard math questions, thought there was no way I got the internship. And I ended up getting the internship and I was invited back full time. So that's how I started on Wall Street. And so did you look at any other quantitatively oriented firm? Because I've heard of Susquehanna because my husband worked there and now I know a lot of Susquehanna alum. But I remember in college when I first heard about the name, it's not a really common name, or at least it wasn't 20 years ago, outside of trading. Did you then say, okay, who is this firm? Or did you look at other banks? And what were you thinking in that process? I had offers from SPC Warburg and also Bank of America in San Francisco. But Susquehanna, after interning there, I met some of the smartest people I met. There was one Harvard-educated lawyer, a woman, and she was talking to me. She was dressed in khakis very nonchalantly. And she said, what do you want to do after college? And she told me that investment bankers make much, much less per hour. They have to work much harder. That she made much more money as a trader than an investment banker than being a lawyer at a law firm. And I was so impressed that this woman, she was a specialist too. And she later went to Smith Barney and she was head of some desk. But there was a powerful, strong woman that was in charge of a crowd on the floor of the American Stock Exchange. And I was super impressed. And so I'm more familiar with the training program, but for the listeners who are not, can you describe the very unique and special training that Susquehanna did? Because I remember as my husband went through the training, just to impress him, I remember reading like David Skolansky books and reading Amarillo Slim and pretty much every poker <laughs> gambling player background. But it's a really unique culture in terms of the training. So I'd love for our listeners to hear that. So when I joined, there was 280 people at Susquehanna. Now I think there are several thousand. And it's a pretty flat organization. Recruits, they hired from the best schools. And we had to answer all, all kinds of crazy math questions to be there. And day to day, we would be clerks. And we would fetch coffee and, and do clerical duties. But at the same time, we would stand next to the head trader at some product and we can ask them questions during the day. What were you thinking? Why did you like to do this trade? Why didn't you do this trade? And after about a year, you were picked or not picked to go to the training program in Ballot Kinwood. And there you spent 10 weeks. They 
they put you up in a rental and you played poker with the partners after they were done trading and you mock traded during the day and you learned theoretical pricing from professors from colleges. It was really a great experience. And so you were there for how long? I was at Susquehanna for a little over 10 years. 10 years. And eventually you were running their high cap index group as well as starting their commodity vol trading program. But how would you describe kind of the 10 years that you were there? It sounds very positive, but in terms of in any additional color you'd like to share? I absolutely loved Adair. My first mentor, Laura Valoroso, she, she was a good role model as a woman. Most of the floor the American Stock Exchange, most of Wall Street, they were all men, but I had been her assistant amongst others. And she really nurtured me and helped me along. And I think that was very, very, very positive. Also Susquehanna, it was a true meritocracy. They didn't judge me based on anything but my abilities. And they were very, very nurturing towards me. If you earned it, they would let you take on more risk and more responsibility. So they were, it was a very good experience. I learned a lot from them. Can you talk about your longest losing streak, whether it's the magnitude of the drawdown or an extended period, whether it's days, weeks or something? And how long was that? How did you feel with it? I guess I would classify it. I mean, there are many different ways to think about this. There's one situation where in February, I think 2000... 2008. I think it was 2008. But I had a position in cotton and I bought all these calls in cotton for, for a very cheap price. And it was cheap relative to corn and beans and wheat, but it was cheap because it was traded on a different exchange than those other products. And there are different traders in it, but there was a correlation there because they were planted in the same fields. So the position for two weeks went against me and I had no idea why. And it turns out that somebody who was betting on what I was betting on had bought the wrong month in cotton. So just a crazy fluke, just someone else's error. Somebody else made an error, but I didn't know what was going on. Nobody knew what was going on. And I was basically the only person buying those calls anyway in December. So when the news came out, I ended up making all of it back and then some, which was totally gratifying. The news didn't break, whether it was a week or two, it sounded like just a couple of weeks. If that was extended and you still saw the pricing as an opportunity, would you have kept going? Or do you think you were close to acting differently behaviorally because of the drawdown and the extended duration of it? Well, I would say it's different at every company. So at Susquehanna, I was talking to my risk manager, Jeff, about 50,000 times a day. We would talk, why did you have this position on? How much do you have it on? What's going on? Wrote emails, talked, just basically all day. At Susquehanna, they gave you, as long as you're a rational decision maker and you're making the right decisions, win or lose, they supported you. So I would say that I would probably have been miserable in my head, but if the firm believed in my logic, they would have supported me and I would have kept the position on. And they were able to weather the drawdowns also because that's their business model to make positive expectancy trades and keep making them win or lose. But I would say here, 
when I would have drawdowns, I would risk manage myself, cut the position down, cut it down more if it wasn't working, keep cutting it down because you can always re-enter the trade. So I think it's different at every shop you're at. For the listeners who aren't as familiar with commodity or exchange arbitrage, as you had mentioned a few of those scenario example trades, can you give it in a nutshell what commodity derivative trading is? So it's interesting. It's unlike equity options trading because equity options trading, there are no real hedgers. The companies themselves are not allowed to trade their own derivatives. But in the commodity physical options, you have a lot of hedging. You have producer hedging where, for example, if it's Canadian shale or Brazil or Mexico, they produce oil and they need to hedge against the price of oil going down. Then you have consumers who use the oil and most likely they're hedging either in refined products or Brent and they're hedging against oil going up. So you have natural hedgers in oil and you have natural hedgers in soft commodities from the producer side. And it's very different. There's a lot of deals that are going on that people are hedging. And with Dodd-Frank, the banks are not inventorying as much risk. They're laying it off to other people who are willing to warehouse risk. And that's where the opportunity is now, taking the other side of deals. And that's how it's different than equity options trading. All I'm envisioning is that scene in Trading Places with Eddie Murphy and Dan Aykroyd as they're talking about pretty much every commodity, whether it's corn or orange juice or whatnot. Was that really how it was for you? Yeah, I mean, but they were betting more on futures prices going up or down. I bet on volatility. I bet on skew. What happens to the options price if we go up? What happens to the options price if we go down? What happens in every single scenario? What happens after earnings or after the crop report? So it's a little bit different. And I think you have a little bit more room too because they expire. Options expire. They're just basically insurance contracts. So there is sort of a due date for whether you're right or wrong. So when you reflect upon your career, knowing going into it that it was highly quantitative, that it was highly p based and you really liked that and it was attractive to you. I'm sure you didn't predict that you'd be trading commodities and looking at crop reports. Did you ever think, no, this is not for me, or I want to trade something different, or hey, let's be a fundamental research analyst instead? Did you ever think that or did you just like the line in hindsight that it was going down this direction? I like the born and bred at Susquehanna, relative value, arbitrage, opportunistic, I like relative value. I like, this is cheap, I'll buy it. This is expensive, I'll sell it. I don't like predicting prices. I don't think I'm smarter directionally than let's say a producer or a consumer. I have no idea. That's sort of the mentality we had at Susquehanna. We have no idea if the stock is going up or down. But if I think this is a buy versus this, then I put the spread on. So I think that's kind of how I was raised. Why did you decide to leave? I thought to myself that I needed to be a little bit more entrepreneurial. I wanted to more eat what I killed, a higher payout at a different sort of structured firm. And so what did you do after Susquehanna? I went to try to figure out oil trading because I had a non-compete and I could not trade soft commodities then for about nine months. So I had to figure something else out. So Being an index trader, I used my index background and tried to price heating oil and Arbob product vol off of Brent and WTI vol. 
I remember when my husband started turning RBOB, I looked up all these acronyms like H-O-H-U, RBOB. I'm like, what is he saying in all these acronyms? And I think I still remember it. It's reformulated blending for oxygenate blend stock. But it's one of those I'm like, oh, only NYMEX traders going to know this. And so as you're doing oil trading, did you think about any other non-soft commodity or did you just say, you know what, there's an opportunity in oil, let's go after it? I thought after I put together the sort of strategy, it seemed to have worked. I mean, there are illiquid options that were being traded there and they would, after a while, mean revert. You would have to put the spreads on, but after a while, they would definitely mean revert and it seemed like with the illiquidity, there was opportunity to make money. So I stayed doing that after my non-compete expired. And with that, I also grew to hedge those illiquid assets. I would trade WTI and Brent, and those portfolios quickly became bigger than the product portfolios. About five or six years ago, you launched your own hedge fund. What was that like? What did you think about in terms of ramping it up, getting a new investor, all of that? I'd love to hear the process of starting that. That was really hard. We got a commitment of $50 million in seed money from an investor. But day one, we actually only got in $7 million. So that was pretty stressful. Within a few months, we got to $35 million, and then eventually the 50 but it was not funded the first day, which was stressful. And of course, you have performance anxiety, overhead to pay, all of that stuff. Did you ever think before launching this, just going back to a bank or a structure or an institution that allowed you to be more entrepreneurial? Or did you just know, I actually want to do this on my own. I want to have founder, co-founder status. What was your thought process? I think I had done all of that. I think Susquehanna for me was much better than any bigger bank. I thought they gave me a lot of responsibility. So if I wanted to be at an institution, I would have definitely stayed at Susquehanna. So I definitely wanted to prove myself, see how much I could earn, not as part of a big company or a larger company, but just me and my partner. So it was a lot of stress, a lot of hard work, but really gratifying when we got more investors and we grew, we were able to grow the assets under management to 235 million, which took a lot of work, but it was very gratifying. So what ended up happening to that fund? My partner had a personal issue and we had to shut the fund down. What was the time period from launch to closure? About two and a half years. Okay. And were you surprised? Were you shocked? Because it sounded like you were so excited to start your business and this was this entrepreneurial part of your life and your career. How did you feel closing it? It was super depressing. I felt like a big failure, even though we didn't close because of me. It was just very soul crushing for me being part of when my partner left, I was the one shutting the fund down and dealing with the investors and the employees. So I felt like I let everybody down and I was trying to save the company and investors did not stay with me. And that was very humbling and depressing also. In fact, some investors didn't even realize that I was trading as much as I was. All of it was very, very depressing for me. And so how long did the wind down take? 
took about six months. That's a long time for you to feel every day that you're responsible for your employees and the culture and then responding to, I'm sure, not so happy investors. So what did you do after that? Did you take some time off or did you no. start something else again? During the whole entire six months, besides winding on the portfolio, I was actively trying to find investors to save the company, new investors, existing investors, just talking to everybody. And after that, I, I didn't want to feel like a failure by staying home or taking time off. I felt like I needed to get back on my feet. Something I really learned from martial arts, don't be a quitter. Don't be a quitter. Always fall down seven times, get up eight. I kept looking for something. What did you eventually end up finding? I ended up here where I am now. I'm at First New York and they took a shot on me. And after about three months of working here, they actually made me partner. I mean, I've been here for a little over two years now and super grateful and happy and treated very, very, very well, which I think means everything to me. And so what is your role here at FNY Partners? I manage an oil options portfolio, relative value, opportunistic, trade all the options in a barrel of oil. So I have my oil book and yeah, that's basically it. You had mentioned when you're exploring opportunities professionally in college, you said, I want to make money. And you were convinced at Susquehanna that this is probably higher dollar to hours worked ratio. Yes. Is that something that you still think about in your career? Definitely, because I don't want to work inefficiently. I have kids. I like to spend time with my children and they mean everything to me. So, and actually, this is what I love. You eat what you kill and you have a report card every single day. You have a P&L attached to your name. Were you good today? Were you not good today? It's much more fast-paced than investment banking, and I think this is the perfect job for me. It reminds me of that famous bank robber, Willie Sutton, who, when asked, you know, why do you rob banks? He's like, that's where the money is. <laughs> for you, is that just, once you started trading, did you just feel like, this is where I belong? Absolutely. Everything about it, just every single thing about it, the camaraderie, the excitement, the ability, options trading is like putting together a puzzle. It's a zero-sum game, and not everybody can make money. D different ways of skinning the cat, and so it's pretty cool to be able to put together a good portfolio and consistently make money. That's gratifying to me. Because it is a zero-sum game and it's hyper-competitive, do you find that you can make it collaborative, or is that not possible in the options trading world? I think you can make a collaborative, but as for now, I think you have to be able to see everything that's going on in the market and you have to be able to see all the pieces of the puzzle to put it together. So I think if you were a part of a team now and you did not see every single part of the puzzle, I think it's harder to trade actually as a team than a single person. Now, is it more stressful to trade everything by yourself? Yes. But I think at least in the current environment, it's necessary to trade as one portfolio, one person. Mm -hmm. One thing I love the way you describe Susquehanna is that it was a true meritocracy, that if you did well, they elevated you and it was quantifiable. Your P&L showed how well you did. One thing we haven't talked about is the qualitative and unique lens that you apply because you are different than most traders. And that includes that you're a woman. Do you think that helped you or hurt you? And I asked that because Sally Krawcheck was asked this question and it was, did it help you or hurt you that you were a woman in the field of finance and investments? And her answer was yes and yes. 
And I'm curious if you have the same or different answer. I think she's right. I think that initially, I mean, it depends what firm you're at. Obviously, Susquehanna, they were gender blind towards me. At least I felt that way. And also at first New York. But definitely even my experiences on the floor of the exchange where let's say there are 800 members and 20 of them are women, women were not taken as seriously. But then when they got to know you and you were a woman, they respected you and then they treated you differently in a good way. So that's on the floor of the exchange, but also upstairs too. Nobody expects you to walk into the boardroom, but then if you impress them, you're different and you stand out. You had mentioned martial arts a bit before. When did you start getting involved in that? I would say about eight years ago. What was the catalyst for you starting? So my son, he started martial arts. He was very defiant and we didn't know what to do with him. He wasn't focused and I wasn't sure if he had ADHD, but I knew I did not want to medicate him and I wanted to try something. So we took him to a martial arts studio and we signed him up to see if it would help him. And sitting in the lobby, I said, hey, that could be interesting. That could be a good stress reliever. That could help me stay fit after having kids. I thought I'd give it a try. And just fell in love with it. Just fell in love with (laughs) it. It feels very good. It's just me time. Just feel very satisfying to hit a 250 pound heavy bag (laughs) or work with a partner and feel good that I think I can defend myself if I ever had to. Well, I like that you mentioned the psychology of quitting. And if you fall down five times, you get up six. Did that affect your trading more than you thought in hindsight when you reflect on it? Absolutely. In martial arts, even if you're the best, you can still lose. So also in trading, there are definitely are times where you can be a good trader, but you can lose money. And that's just normal. But I think in my mind, you truly lose if something bad happens to you and you fail and you don't get back up. When you give up is when you actually lose. You can't quit when you have something more to give. And so one question I ask all of my guests is, based on the name of the show, what has been your most impactful or memorable failure? And you had alluded to it with the launch of your hedge fund at the time. Is that one of the most impactful? And if so, what did you learn from it, if you could share with our listeners? I think that was the biggest failure of my life. It was very humbling, very depressing, very humiliating. But I think that did teach me that you shouldn't give up on yourself. If you really believe in yourself, you should just try your best to get back on your feet and see if other people can believe in you too. How did you get out of that though? And it sounded like it was a multi-month process of dealing with investors who were not so happy with you or dealing with your colleagues who were sad about the wind down. How did you get through that? I think it's a work in process. I think I started doing yoga, all the exercising. I would bike, I would do boxing, meditating. I mean, I also do some charity work that made me feel good. Uh, I took a trip to the Philippines to open some schools with my charity. That made me feel good too. But I mean, it just takes time to feel better. You mentioned something that I think is quite amazing, but you just flipped it in there. What do you mean? You went to the Philippines and you opened schools. Can you elaborate on that? So I'm on the board of a charity, All Hands and Hearts. And I was originally involved in it when it was Happy Hearts with Petra Nomkova. She's a supermodel that was almost killed in a tsunami. And 
So she started a charity to open schools, mainly elementary schools in after natural disasters in third world countries. So there was a boxing event. There was a martial arts event and they had come to my office about three or four years ago to get me involved and I agreed to fight. So I, I raised money for that. I fought and I became very passionate about this charity. And with the money that we raised for education, we opened up a school in the Philippines. So we traveled and got to see all the kids and it was very gratifying and it was, it was awesome. And was that during the wind down of the hedge fund? That was in between the wind down and me starting my job at First New York. One of the questions I also ask is who or what inspires you? Is this charity the biggest inspiration you have? Is it your children? Definitely my children. I would say everything I do, I try to make it a teachable point. I try to teach them how I want them to be. So, But that's also through hard work. So I try to teach my kids to be grateful for what we have. I try to teach them the non-quitting spirit. They already learned that from doing karate, but I try to model that in my own personal life too. Hey, things happen, get back up, work hard and help others. What are you most proud of so far? I'm most proud of still being in the business. Like you said, I'm happy to be contributing still. I think the day I stop being able to contribute positively to an organization is the day I will retire. I'm pretty proud of my children. I think they've turned out pretty well so far. I'm pretty proud of the schools we've opened through the charity work. Sounds like you're an incredible role model, but you mentioned also in your career, you've benefited from really strong leadership, female leadership, but really just leadership. How do you feel about that now in your career as you are a leader and a partner at your firm? Do you mentor or sponsor younger traders? I would say that especially at Blue Shift, throughout my career, I have mentored many of my assistants into traders. I think I benefited so much from that. I call her my work mother, Laura. I still see her. She's an inspiration to me. She gave me nurturing and love when I needed it in sort of this cold finance world. And also the teaching that Susquehanna gave me, I try to give that back. I have had many assistants and I try to love them, nurture them and teach them but also be a strict tiger mom. (laughs) (laughs) So after your career of 20 years of literally oil, gas, energy, pure volatility trading, you've seen a lot of ups, a lot of downs, and not only in the markets, I'm sure. And you are one of the few that still exhibits such calm, such poise, and such a stable hand. I can't share with our listeners enough, but like as we're sitting across from each other, you're just very zen and you're in this just peaceful zone that... I aspire to because it's just really amazing and very motivating to get around. Do you have any advice for the folks listening, whether they are aspiring traders or really just thinking whether it's finance or not, any words of wisdom to share? I would say find a mentor. I think that was actually key to my success. I would say don't give up, know what's going on in the market, and just listen and pay attention to everything. And I think Obviously, you'd have to be analytically inclined, but I think if you work hard, I mean, I think that's underrated working hard. If you work hard, you probably will be successful. Great. Well, with your non-quitting spirit, you've inspired me to keep going. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much. Thank you so much.